Today's scripture is John 3, verses 14 through 21. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Those who believe in him are not condemned, but those who do not believe are condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and people loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For all who do evil hate the light, and do not come to the light, so that their deeds may not be exposed. But those who do what is true come to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that their deeds have been done in God. John 3.16, it's kind of a hard one to preach on because it's so well known, as we heard in the children's story, people plaster it all over the place, apparently. (laughs) And I get the feeling it's plastered all over the place in the hopes that people will look it up and suddenly realize that in order to save themselves from the pit of hell, they must believe in Christ. Sometimes I think that's what we're, we're hoping happens. 316's often been called the gospel in a nutshell. Um, and, you know, if we watch football or, or, again, shop at Forever 21, we see it every once in a while. And, and again, I think the hope there is to focus in on the fact that those who believe in Christ will have everlasting life. And it's a concise statement, very packed. Although I question whether this one sentence truly captures the whole of the gospel very effectively. In fact, I wonder if it's even ultimately a central thought of this particular passage. Today, so today I really wish to look at John 3.16 in its broader context in order In order to do that, we must really look beyond this one little tiny verse in the midst of this broader narrative. And even more importantly, perhaps, we need to look beyond just that notion that if we believe in Christ, it's about going to heaven and avoiding hell. This passage comes to us on the heels of Jesus' midnight meeting with uh, one one of the high priests named Nicodemus. Whereas he told, where he is told by Jesus that you must be born again. Of course, Nicodemus doesn't seem to understand the nuance of metaphor in Jesus' speech patterns and is baffled by what Jesus says. How can I, how can I be born again? How can I, I'm already born. I'm out here. I'm a grown man for crying out loud. This astonishes Jesus who wonders out loud, how can you understand heavenly things when you can't even comprehend earthly things? 
In other words, he's saying, hey, this is simple stuff, Nicodemus. This is, you know, this is Sunday school. You should be able to get this. You're a religious leader for crying out loud. And then we hear this statement. Jesus starts talking about some heavenly things. And we hear this, st- this statement here. Just as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up as well. Now, if we are anxious to get to the for God so loved the world part, few of us, because we're so anxious about that, few of us even probably never even bothered to look at, wonder, what, is, what are they talking about, Moses lifting up this serpent in the wilderness? What is that about? And to be honest, I really haven't ever paid that close attention to it either. But if, if we do get curious about what this serpent business is about, we would look to Numbers 21, which is actually, if we, were, if we were a liturgical church and read all of the readings for the day, we would be reading this, chap, this verse in Numbers 21 that talks about everyone out in the wilderness living on manna and quail, and all of a sudden the people of God, the Israelites, start to grumble against Moses. This happens all the time. Grumbling against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. I think I've heard this speech at my house uh, a few times. You know, the refrigerator's full, you can't put anything else in it, but we, there's nothing to eat. <laughs> there's nothing in here to eat. Eat that, eat that, eat that. Oh, I don't want that. Clearly the author of John is trying to... Anyway, so, so uh, I'm skipping ahead. So, so they're grumbling against Moses. And Moses goes to God and says, God, your people are grumbling again and they're getting on my last nerve. And God says, well, you know what? I'm going to give them something to grumble about. It's, uh, you know, it is, again, it sounds like a parent, doesn't it? <laughs> Let me give you something to grumble about. So all of a sudden they have this snake problem. Snakes are going around biting the Israelites and they're dying because of this poisonous snake problem. It's almost like if you have a toothache, uh, smash your toe with a hammer, right? Your tooth still hurts, but you're really paying attention to the broken toe. Now God has them focused on these snakes. My God, we're getting bit by snakes. (laughs) People are dying. Moses goes to God again and says, you know, I'm not sure this is the best solution. God says, all right, we'll do this. Build a bronze snake statue. Put it on a stick. And put it out in the middle there. And if anyone gets bit, just have them look at the snake, the bronze snake, and they will recover. They'll make a full recovery. I'll be darned if that didn't work. Moses holds up the snake. People get bit by the snake. And they look at the snake and they they live. It's a story. It's a great story from the Old Testament. It's a good one. And uh, again, it reminds us that, that... we ought to be grateful for what we have. <laughs> things could be worse. <laughs> there could be snakes, right? Those kinds of things. And it would be easy. Clearly, clearly what John, the author of John here is getting at is that, that lifting up Jesus on the cross and casting our gaze upon Jesus on the cross leads us to life just as having that snake up on a stick out in the wilderness leads to life. John's making some parallels. And, and, and you know, simple, right? Just, 
easily put together. And it would be great if that's, that's where it all kind of ends. But this, the whole snake pole issue comes back into play later on as well. We've got to go to 2 Kings now. 2 Kings 18.4 talks about a great king. Now, most of, this, most of the kings and kings aren't very good kings. But the really good one was named Hezekiah. Hezekiah was a good king. And what made him a good king is he came, he came to clean house. He, he got to Jerusalem. He got crowned. And he said, all right, first thing we're going to do, you guys need to get all of these idols out of the, out of the, the temple. He, he's commended for doing what is right in the sight of the Lord. And the thing he did is he removed the high places. This says this in 18.4. He removed the high places and broke down the pillars and cut down the sacred pole. These were, these were pagan idols that had been put in the temple for people to worship. Canaanite idols and other, other gods from other countries thrown in the temple. And Hezekiah did what was right in the Lord by getting rid of all of these idols and destroying them. And then later on in that same verse, the very next thing, what it says is, he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had, had made offerings to it. The, apparently, the people of God had turned this little bronze statue that they had from Moses into an idol. And we're worshiping it. And we're sending people there to experience healing from that serpent. So instead of turning to God for healing, they were going and making offerings to this bronze serpent and being healed there. All of a sudden, this had become an idol and Hezekiah broke it and got rid of it, doing what is right inside of the Lord. All of a sudden, in the midst of John's connection to the Old Testament, there comes this cautionary tale about lifting up idols. So often this text, this John text that we look like, is interpreted as in order for there to be eternal life, Jesus had to die on a cross and we must believe it if we're going to join Him there. And that's what this text says and that's what this text is all about. And... uh, you know, and I understand where that comes from. Uh, you know, whoever believeth in Him will have eternal life. And I don't necessarily argue with that. But the danger is when we focus too much on the death of Christ, then we lose sight of some of what else is going on in this passage. I'm not even sure that eternal life and Jesus' death was really at the heart of what's being said in this story, in this passage that is conveyed to Nicodemus in the midst of the night. But it seems there's a whole lot of other things going on here. The most notable of which is that God loved the world. The point is love. God loved the world so much that He gave us Jesus. And the condemnation is not from not believing that Jesus died for us. The condemnation is that we, humanity, were given the light of God's love and we preferred the darkness. Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the night so that no one would see him. So that his reputation didn't get sullied. 
comes to Jesus in the middle of the night and what Jesus says to him is Nicodemus. The light has broken into the world, but the world prefers darkness. See what I'm saying? Of course, we know nuance is lost on Nicodemus. He doesn't quite get it. But it comes to us. The world loves its darkness. It is the love of darkness that put Christ on the cross. It is our love of the darkness that continues to hold God's love at bay. It is our love of the darkness that keeps us from having a full and abundant life in Christ that He promises. This, this verse is about the light. And it's about the love. You know, I always, i got to admit, I kind of I roll my eyes a lot when people, when, when I get into a good theological conversation with someone about what being a Christian is really about and someone just offers up isn't this supposed to be about love and I go yeah it's so simple (laughs) but you know what they're right (laughs) it's about the love amen it's about the love God so loved this world and sent the light for us to see how much God loved the world and we preferred our darkness. Oh, we love our darkness. Jesus points us to the light, but we often choose the darkness. Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for them. But we prefer to hate our enemies. It's a lot more fun. We, Jesus says, turn the other cheek in defiance of violence, but we prefer eye for an eye. I'm going to turn no cheek. Jesus says justice is about creating an equitable relationship, but we prefer justice that's about punishment. That's justice. Revenge. Jesus says repent and turn away from unhealthy and self-destructive behaviors, but we prefer to hold on to our sin as if it's some kind of security blanket. Oh, don't take my sin. I love it. (laughs) I want to hang on to that. I know it's killing me, but I still want it. Jesus says, forgive one another, but we prefer to wallow in our resentment and nurture a good grudge. Jesus says, love your God, love your neighbor, and love yourself. But we prefer to love God from afar, love neighbors that love us back, and hold ourselves in contempt. Or love ourselves and revile in contempt other people. But at the end of the day, the Gospel in a nutshell is here. But it is this, God so loved the world so much, it's about the love and the light that's shown to us through the love that Christ gave. And it's a plea for you and I to let that love be a light that dispels the darkness in this world. Sure, we go to heaven when it's all over. And that's great. But Jesus' passion and God's love is for this world, not the next. Jesus Jesus is given to us to shine light on this world. Not just to invite us to be a part of the next one. So my prayer is that as we as we embrace, as we see, as we read, and I, you know, I don't know how I feel about John three sixteen being on the bottom of your cup and and bad, you know, I don't know how I'm, I'm gonna have to mull on that a while. 
uh, about you know the department store having that in there. I don't know what they're trying to say. But I think God is conveying to us that there, the love God has for this world is light. And it's a plea for us to embrace the light because it will dispel the darkness. And the darkness already condemns us to a life that's like being shackled and enslaved. In light of this love, God has said we can choose what to do with it. Revile its light and embrace the darkness. Or look up to the light and live. Let us pray. Loving and gracious God, we come as children of the light, knowing that You have called us to embrace a light and a life full of Your love. A love that transcends all the things the world shows us. That transcends the kind of relationships and the kind of world we have today. A love that calls us to a deeper, more significant existence in this world and the next. And we pray that Your light would shine forth from our hearts as we tap into that love. And from this community, as we together nurture that love in one another into this world as we look to that love You have planted in each of us and have called us Your children. We ask all of these things in the powerful name of Christ. Amen.